A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Hey, welcome back to part two of my interview with John Leland. On this question of longevity science and you know quality of life and this kind of thing, just one other, one other thing I, re- I learned recently that I thought was really interesting. I heard something to the effect that although, although people are living longer than ever before, that we have not yet succeeded in extending the human being's natural lifespan. Mm-hmm. And I had never distinguished between people living longer in the current age and extending the, the natural lifespan. I thought that was really an interesting thing. So that much of our longevity average years comes because we're not dying of childhood diseases anymore, right? Yeah. You and I have both made it to 40. Amazingly. So <laughs> yeah. And so those things aren't going to kill us in the way that they might have killed our great-great-grandfathers, right? Yeah. Okay. So the last thing for now before I switch that I think is good news for everyone is this idea that there's plenty of research, and it sounds like perhaps your experience as well, living up close with uh, the six elders that you did, is that older people are happier than younger people. They are, and it's so fascinating, and there's a lot of different explanations for it. I mean, it's, it's, it's counterintuitive, right? But it comes out in study after study, year after year after year. They're just more content, they're less stressed, they're less afraid of death, and they less likely to complain that their boss is a jerk because they don't have a boss. But there's a great explanation for, for it from Laura Karstensen, who runs the Longevity Center at Stanford. And what she says is that it all comes down to the way we look at time, that when we're young, we see a lot of time in front of us and we panic because we don't know how to fill that time. We put all our energy into gathering experiences and information. And some of these things are painful, right? I, I love the idea that like when you're young, you'll kiss a frog, hoping it turns out to be a prince. When we're old, we know that the frog is stays a frog. So. Then when we get older, we start to see a shorter time horizon, and so we focus more on things that are pleasing to us in the short term. Enjoy those things. What is it you care about? You don't have to go to a mixer, you know, and meet that person hoping they're going to be the right person for you. You know, you can spend time with people that you care about. You don't. Laura Carson says, as we get older, we don't go on blind dates. <laughs> I thought, I thought that was interesting that people, at least the subject in your book, many of them were very selective about who they associated with and how they spent their time. And they had no qualms about that. They did. And it was really instructive to me because I, like most people, have some people in my life that aren't good for me. 
you know, they just, they always bring me down. They're just a problem. There's nothing I can do for them. And so it, I, I just started to say, well, that's not the person I'm going to spend time with. All they're going to do is complain. I'm not helping them by listening to their complaints and they're not helping me by, by complaining to me. I think if they are people that actually needed my help, they had some sort of physical need and I could, could fulfill that and I was turning away from it for because it made me feel bad, then that would be a selfish thing to do. But I started to do that and it just helped me reorient myself and say, you know, who is good for me? Who are the people I care about in life? And these limited hours I have to, that are at my discretion, why don't I spend them with them? Yeah. I'm not still, I'm still working on this. I'm not very good at it, but I, I at least know that it's out there. Yeah. My mom's mom lived through the depression and she was a person, my grandma was a person who saved many things. And many of those things seemed totally worthless to me, but my mom inherited that tendency in some ways. And I remember just a few years ago when my mom finally made the decision to let go of a bunch of, and now I'm self-conscious about telling a story about my mom. <laughs> it's her story to tell, but I don't think she, I don't think she'd mind. Sorry, mom, if this was inappropriate. But she had these blocks of fabric she had intended to make into quilts, and she had saved them in the same way that her mom had saved things. And I remember just a few years ago when my mom made the decision to get rid of those, knowing that she was never going to get around to doing it. And I thought, that is really interesting to be pretty certain that the life you're looking at is less than the life you've already lived. And this basically a, what I saw as a dream, a dream or an intention that she'd held for many years was something that she willingly let go. It's like, that's really interesting. And in a way, it was sad. And in another way, I think she experienced it as very liberating. Great story. I love that. Yeah. But people do that. We find out that we, we have a better sense of what matters to us and what matters to us tomorrow, what matters to us next month, what matters to us. Yeah, and what we'll do with the available time and what we won't do. Yeah. That's pretty cool. That, so that definitely explains for me why older people might be happier than younger people. Get rid of that crap. <laughs> yeah, get rid, get rid of that. Sure, Some of sure. it being material, but more of it being uh, you know in our heads. I want to ask you about this experience that you had. I think it was in Ohio about extreme aging where people yes. simulated. Will you talk about what was this thing and what was what was it like? What did you learn from it? There was a program called Extreme Aging, X-T-R-E-M-E, of course, aging. And it was developed to encourage empathy for people who work with older people, to give them a sense of what it's like to be older. So the, the people in the course, I was one of the people in the course, as student, I guess students or enrollees, whatever, we Vaseline on our glasses to make it so we couldn't see as well. We had to wear like these rubber gloves so we, we, our hands weren't as useful. We put kernels of corn in our shoes so that walking gave us a little bit of ache. It was just a way to simulate these things so we could understand the next time and do like simple things like make change or try to remember something or, or do simple things. So that next time when you are in the supermarket and the person in front of you is taking a little bit longer than you think she or he should be taking, you can step back and say, oh yeah, that's really freaking hard what they're trying to do. And and just step back and see that. And so for the 
mostly nurses or social workers who work with older people. It was a way for them to get a little bit deeper into the mindsets of the people that they were working with. And it was such a wonderful experience because it was A, humbling. You think, oh, that's never going to happen to me. But B, it showed you that this older person that you're going to be is really a continuation of who you are now. It's not some like tacked on appendix to your life. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. That sounds interesting. It was fun. It was really, it was really a cool experiment. Yeah, that's neat. I want to go ahead and transition us to the enlightening lightning round. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. First question. Please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a... Box of chocolates. <laughs> That's not allowed. <laughs> uh, life is like a, a trip on a train that stops at many different stations. You don't know what they're going to be. Okay. Thank you. Question number two. What is something you are not which you once were? On my way up. Okay. Thank you. Number three. If you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a saying or a phrase or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? Get a camera. Right on. Number four. What book or books other than your own have you gifted or recommended most often? The Spirit Catches You When You Fall Down by Ann Fadiman and The Russian Debutante's Handbook by Gary Steingart. I have read neither of those books. I recommend them both highly. They're both fiction, is that right? No, Ann Fadiman's book is a nonfiction book. It's about it's about sort of immigration and healthcare and all the different things. It takes it's involves Hmong refugees. Hmm. Next question. So I imagine that you travel a lot. Or you have traveled a lot. I used to. Okay. We'll count that. So here's the question, based on that fact. What's a travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you or did or took with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? My travels are good when I remember to bring a good, when I choose my book well. How can you be sure you've chosen well? I'll usually try to test things out a little bit before I go. I'll try to read at least a page or two of a book if it's to see if it's going to drive me on that trip. I know a woman who will read the last page first. <laughs> She'll say, if it's not a happy ending, I won't read it. Kind of cheating, but okay. <laughs> but that's I'll not you? Not me. Okay. Number six, what's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? I've stopped worrying about dying and I've learned to accept the fact that my life is limited and I'm going to enjoy this day because it has value because my days are finite. Okay. Number seven, what's one thing you wish every American knew? That getting older is another way of living, another way of thinking about living. Hmm. Aging and living are the same thing. Beautiful. Well, and that's the, I think the term is epigraph. Is that the term for the first, the introductory quote of a book? Yeah, yeah. I love what you chose as the epigraph for this book. Oh, the David Bowie thing. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, will you share that? He says... Or I will read it if, if you want it verbatim. Perfect. I think he says something like, it, it's aging is that extraordinary process whereby we become the person we were always meant to be. Yeah, that's it. I think that's such a beautiful perspective. 
Yes, and you know he he really was so heroic, David Bowie. Why do you say that? Because he was working in a lot of pain towards the end of his life, and he was never in the lives of the people he worked with. He was never that guy who was dying. He was David Bowie, and he was. We're here together to do this thing. Let's do this thing. That's really cool. What's the most important or useful relationship advice you've ever heard and successfully applied? Don't try to change anybody. They don't. Okay, thank you. Number nine. Aside from compound interest, what's the most important lesson you've ever learned about money or what's something you're sure to always or never do with it? Never do anything just because you make a lot of money doing it. What matters are the relationships with the people you're going to work with. I love that. I want to be sure to ask this here so I don't forget it or leave it till the very end. If somebody wanted to connect with you or learn more from you, what would you have them do? I love to hear from people, strangers, people have questions, people have comments, people have, I've met the most extraordinary people through this book. You can email me at leland at nytimes.com. Awesome. Okay. Great. Thank you. And I also will say this here to make sure I remember it, but as a gesture of gratitude to you for making time to talk with me and share your experience and your wisdom with everyone listening, I have gone on to Kiva.org and I have made a $100 microloan to a woman entrepreneur in India who will use this money to, she will buy saris, which she will then sell. There's a 29-year-old woman named Sonaben who lives in Gujarat, and she has a household of four members, and her household income is about $140 US dollars. So I hope that uh, this will improve the quality of life for her, her family, and people in her community, and I want to say thank you for giving me a reason to do that. Oh, and thank you for doing that. That's such a fantastic thing. And my partner used to do work with Kiva, so I'm, uh, I always had a very good feeling towards them. Awesome. That's great. Yeah, I think, I think they're amazing. Okay, so the final part of the interview here is intended to be an exploration of the creative process, writing, maybe publishing, maybe marketing or promoting published works, that kind of thing, all with the idea in mind that people listening also want to do those things or are doing some of those things and learning, having the benefit of your experience and your opinion. Let me start with this question. In your journey as a writer, in your development as a writer, who has been influential for you and why? My friend Ira has been the biggest influence on me. He was like my first editor and a, a good friend of mine. And he was someone I could always turn to and would tell me when I was wrong and tell me when I was right. So having that that kind of person there, I would say also my father was a, a big influence on me because he just encouraged me to tell whatever stories I wanted to tell. And those two things have been enormously helpful. I have been so fortunate that I've had a, a in, in my so-called career, I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of really good editors and great colleagues, and they've all shaped me in some ways. But, but these two people would be the ones I would single out. That's great. I've noticed in meeting and talking with and interviewing writers of many different kinds that there seems to be a difference in thinking between what I would call uh, a writer, or more specifically, a writer of nonfiction books, and a journalist. But you're both. Will you talk a little bit about maybe the difference in your experience as a journalist versus someone who writes and publishes books, if there is one? 
I don't necessarily agree that there's a huge difference there. For me, this book, The Happiness is a Choice You Make, is a departure from me because I put myself into it, which I don't usually do. Oh. My other two books are analytical books, and they were really more extensions of what I do as, as a journalist. So I, I see a huge difference between fiction writing and nonfiction writing. And I've tried fiction writing and, and gotten a lot out of it, but nobody else has gotten much out of my fiction. <laughs> when I read it I understand why yeah. but but that's also always that's also fine with me so you were saying that you your experience is there if there is a difference in writing it might be between fiction and nonfiction I see a huge difference between fiction and nonfiction not so much between writing articles and writing books usually when I when I have been writing books I've started to think about them as a lot of small pieces that need it's worked out. I, I can't think about the entire fabric of a book at once. I know there's people that can do that. I'm not that person. I need to break it down into smaller bits and then break those things down into smaller bits and break those things into smaller bits. But, you know, it comes down to storytelling. Do we have a love of storytelling? Do we have a love of, of presenting stories? We're, we're making the same kind of decisions all the time. What's important? What's not important? What's background? What's noise? If we were really to tell the story of what's going on now, we would say, oh, I'm inhaling, I'm exhaling, my digestive juices are working. But that's not the story we tell. The story we tell is something that, that we create. I get to work with great photographers in my work, and, it's, and I'm always grateful to them because I learn from them. But one of the things they talk about is professional photographers don't take photographs. They make photographs. They use that language. And I think that's what storytelling is. It's creating the story, not just describing what's going on. That's cool. I haven't heard that distinction before between taking and making photographs. Yeah, it's a, it's a subtle one, but it's, I think it's quite powerful. And, and you understand it, that why your photographs don't actually look like the world. We live the world that we see in photographs. What is your process for completing a book I mean, I, and I'm fascinated by this. How do you know, first of all, that the idea for a book is the one that you're willing to dedicate, however long it takes, a year, two years, more, to getting to bringing that into reality, A, and then B, once you do, what's your process for taking that from an idea to a, a finished work? With Happiness as a Choice You Make, it was really interesting because I'd written the newspaper series and I was not ready to let go of the people that I'd spent all this time with. And I needed an excuse to keep spending time with them. So I thought like, okay, what is it? And at some point, like in the middle of the year, the middle of the year after doing this year long series, I had this idea, wait, happiness is a choice you make. And I wrote it down and I taped it up by my bed and I was just looking at it every day. And it, it sort of, it kind of seeped into my consciousness and just was a reminder to me to, I get to tell the story of how I, how I live. I get to create the story of my life. Happiness is a choice. I'm not defined by the circumstances of my life. I get to create the story of how I, I fit into those. And that helped me. That sort of led me to the book. And I knew it was a book when I was on fire to write it. It took me a while to do that. And it probably took me to the point I sat down and wrote the proposal for it to really understand that I can do it. I don't need to be afraid of this thing. I can bite it off. I can put myself in it, I can put my mother in it, and it's going to be scary and it's going to be different and I'm going to learn a lot in the process. 
But I don't, with my books, I haven't gone into them thinking I've learned the lesson of the book and now I want to tell it to you. The writing process is, is a process of discovery for me. And I, I always learn what my thoughts are by writing them. Yeah, I hear that a lot. And I've certainly had that experience that some people will say, I don't really know what I think until I write it. Yeah. And I just read this amazing memoir called The Undying by a woman named Anne Boyer. And it's about her experience with breast cancer. And she's she was a poet. And she, I, don't, I don't think she had written nonfiction before. And it's this fiery, feisty, angry book. And she's angry at her disease and about the care she's getting. And you can tell at a certain point in the book, she's creating the experience, she's making sense of the experience she's living by writing it, rather than describing what she's feeling as she's going through it. So the book is like the, the front edge of living. And you can see it clearly in that book, more clearly than in possibly anything I've ever read. And it's fantastic. It's, it's eye-opening. That sounds beautiful. What's your process for writing, whether it's articles or books? Do you have... Because I have this, I've heard this, and maybe you can, that journalists, they don't have the luxury of ever getting writer's block. Do you get writer's block? I, I do, and I'm not the kind of journalist that writes a story every day. I have been that, that journalist in, in my time. But usually I'll do a story every couple of weeks or so. It'll take a while to get done. And it's always good for me in the course of that if I'll have those kind of quick hits where I have to do something right away and do it off the top of my head. But for the most part, I get to think about things and plot them out. Often I'll write something and I'll figure out what it is from writing the first draft and have to go back into it. What I, uh, a occupational hazard for reporters is to over-report stories and then you feel like what you're doing is serving the reporting and getting the reporting in and you lose track of what the story is. And so instead of the, the reporting serving the story, the story is serving the reporting which is not rewarding for anybody. So often I will just throw out my reporting and just write the story without it and then plug the reporting into the story. Can you give an example of that? Yes, I I will, let me see, what's the story that I've been working on recently? I know you did that one about the real estate in New York City. I don't know if that's applicable here. You know, that is, that actually is. I had to, I interviewed so many people for this. I wrote a story about how Real estate, big real estate interests kind of have thrown their weight around in New York City for so long. And then last year, they suffered a couple, they suffered a bunch of setbacks. The city finally fought back against this idea that development is good. Uh, you know, all development is good. It's either, either develop or you, you die. And the city fought back against that. And I had all these interviews with all these people from both sides, from the development side, from the housing activist side. And to write the story... I just kind of had to throw most of that out and say, this is really what about, these are the big forces, this is who they are. And I'm not sure it came out entirely successfully, but it was a way of putting together some pieces that hadn't been put together before. Right on. So when you write, again, whether it's articles or for a book is, is maybe not so different as you've said, What's your process? Do you have a daily routine? Do you write every day? Do you have any rituals that you're always, you know, you're sure to observe? Brewing tea, wearing certain slippers or going for a walk or anything like that? I need a lot of coffee and I need to walk the dog in the middle. And what I find is, is probably a lot of writers get this. 
you get blocked on something, you're working on something at night, you're working on something at night, it's not coming together. The absolute best way to make to figure out what it is is shut the computer off, brush your teeth, go to bed, and now you're going to figure out what it is and you're not going to be able to sleep at night. <laughs> you know, because it's going to hold you up. But getting away from it, even if it's just a little thing, often I'll find that when I hit send on a story, send it into the my editor, all of a sudden, I know what's wrong with it. Wow. Said, oh, all that things that was bothering me about it, that little thing, that itch you have in the back of your mind, you understand it's there. You click send, it's out of your hands. You suddenly can figure out what it is. So try to get some distance on your stories. Yeah, I remember when I read Stephen King's memoir on writing, and I was- It's great, isn't it? Yeah, it's fantastic. I learned so much and I enjoyed it. And one of the things, and it's along the lines of what you're saying here, I was a little surprised to learn was that he will often put a manuscript, a finished manuscript in a drawer for six months or a year. I was like, whoa, that is, so talking about getting distance from your writing and then come back and read it. And, and with that perspective that it's easy perhaps to see how it can be better or where the deficiencies are, pretty remarkable. You know, I think that's a really brave thing to do because you know we are now, you've written something, you're drunk on that manuscript right now. You're committing yourself to looking at it sober. You know, that's, I think that's a, that's a courageous thing to do. And Stephen King has, has earned that, earned that courage, but I have manuscripts in my drawer that I'm afraid to look at. <laughs> what was it? Wasn't it, I guess we could attribute everything to Eleanor Roosevelt, his courage is pointing the way or something like that. I don't remember, I don't know. I remember that quote off the top of my head, but it's kind of, you know, the thing to do because it's the thing you're afraid of or Joseph Campbell. The cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So in service to the listener, let's see. What else is useful to talk about when it comes to the creative process, when it comes to writing, when it comes to finishing? I mean, I guess maybe this. What's the secret, as though there is one? What's the secret to completing good work, good writing? I would say one of the secrets is quite prosaic, just getting down and doing it. A friend of mine wrote a book called Bang the Keys. You have to get at the computer, typewriter, whatever it is. You have to bang the keys. You have to put that story in, read it aloud, see what doesn't make any sense, try to get out of your own head. Is there a story there? Are there people in it? Are the people real? Do they? Do, are you offering readers a chance to make a connection? I often think that what my work is, is I'm a yenta. I'm going to introduce you to some interesting people. That's all I have to do. If I can do that, I feel I've done something of some value and I'll let my characters do the work and they'll do things that I can't possibly do. But if I can make that introduction to you in an honest way that delivers real flesh and blood people in, into your home, into your living room, onto your screen, whatever, then I've done something and you guys take it away from here. Talk yeah. among yourselves. I love that view. I love that view. Do you have a motto as a writer or any any kind of quotes that stick with you or have persisted over the years that have served you? I don't think I'm that person. I don't like mottos or I, I don't. I, I will sit down and, and do it, but I won't think man is put here to, you know, man is a storytelling animal. I, I don't have that. Then let's let's shift gears just a little bit and talk about what have you learned when it comes to to pitching or selling a book? I think you have to understand the book you want to sell, why somebody would want to read it, 
what is of value to somebody. What problem does this solve? What what uh, what gap does it fill? And I don't mean that in a commercial sense. I mean that in a spiritual, emotional, intellectual, social sense. Why why do I think Brian that you would like to know this information? Why is this useful to you? Or am I just doing this for my own uh, sense of fun? And part of that is my voice is so amazingly, my written writing voice is so amazingly entertaining that you'll just be dazzled by it. And won't that be a fun ride? Maybe, maybe not. I, I don't happen to be that writer. I, I, we've all read writers who, who are that writer and we'll just, we just want to hear that voice in our heads. But what's the value to you here? What do I have to give to you? That makes sense. It's one of those things knowing, like really understanding that. And I love the way that you say that spiritually, intellectually, emotionally, socially, like really understanding that, not just commercially. But how can we arrive at clarity about those things? Falling in love with whatever you're writing about, finding falling in love with, with your story, letting that love kind of, kind of grow. You know, the publishing world is a hard world. Why do you uh, say that? Publishing world wants to know how many Instagram followers you have, how to sell your thing. It's hard. Most books come out and they fail. It's it's a t- it can be a lonely process, and you can pour your heart and soul into it, and somebody just says, "Well, the eighteen-year-olds aren't going to read it," or, or whatever, or or I don't think that kind of person reads books or buys books. And it's hard. People get their hearts broken in this business a lot. Yeah. When someone pointed out to me once, and this is, I feel like this has served me well that when we, we hear about bestsellers, that that's exactly what it sounds like. It's a best-selling book. Like a best-selling author is a be- is just that, a best-selling author. It's not the best writing author. <laughs> and I know a lot of people, myself included, I think sometimes or for a long time, we tend to think that the publication or the completion of the manuscript is the finish line. And maybe it is, but if we want it to get out into the world, if we want people to know about it, if we want them to pick it up and read it, it doesn't just happen by itself. Yeah. The thing that has been fun for me with this book is going out and talking about it. And I've done more than 100 speaking engagements since the book came out in wow. 2018. And they've been kind of all over the place, both co- you know from coast to coast. And I did some in Milan. And it's been a joy. But what I've enjoyed about that is not the selling, but the meeting people. Everywhere I've gone, people have had incredible stories to share. And I thought, like, if I can just listen to, to people's stories, that's going to be a wonderful thing. And I thought of it initially as promoting the book. I'm going out there. I'm trying to sell books. And I would go out and I would sell 12 books. And you think, really, was it worth getting in the plane and flying to Minneapolis to sell 12 books? And over the course of this two years, my my focus on it has changed, and now I don't think about it as a way to sell books. I think about it as a way to tell my stories. This is just a way to communicate with people in the same way that the book was. Might reach more, you know, I write an article in the New York Times and it could reach hundreds of thousands of people or more, and I write a book and it can reach tens of thousands of people if I'm lucky, and I can speak at a senior's building in Milwaukee, and I can speak to dozens of people. It happens to be a more intimate connection, there's a, and there's some uh, some value in that. Yeah, for sure. So it sounds, and I might be putting words in your mouth, so to speak, but it sounds to me like building a platform is not a big concern of yours. 
it isn't. I, I, you know, I told myself going into this, I'm going to really be organized about this. I'm going to do like a, all sorts of electronic engagement with, with people. And I ended up not doing it. I just found I had the time and energy to do some things and not the time and energy to do others. And I often regret it, but never too much. And so I can always live with that decision. But I wouldn't, re- I wouldn't recommend it as the path, path to others. Of not, I mean, in, of in not part, building, you mean? Yeah. I mean, in part because I've always thought that this was something I did in addition to my journalism and not, not the key to my economic life. Okay, so my last question. I think this is my last question. What are the qualities of a great sentence and how can we write more of them? The qualities of a great sentence are in the voice of the sentence for me. I've always felt that voice and rhythm are what make a sentence work. The power of the, the sentence has to be in the front of the sentence or the, or the back of the sentence. It has to live off its verbs. And it has to have something to say. We've all read like beautifully ornate sentences that don't actually say anything, don't advance the story, don't tell you something that you didn't know. And a crude sentence that tells you something that you didn't know is of more value than this beautifully formed sentence that that doesn't tell you anything. We can write this most ornate, flowery sentence, and it's like, wow, was that great? And somebody else says, the weapons are in the shed behind the barn. You know, that's a a better sentence. That's a great sentence. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you for, I mean, that is, that is beautiful. Everything you shared and I'm going to do my best to kind of recap. So feel free to correct or, or add, but the power of a sentence being in the front or the back of the sentence. Yes. The, I forgot what you said, what the word was about verbs, power in the verbs. Yeah. All the, all the strength of the sentences in the verbs. The strength of the sentences in the verbs. That's really cool. And then I love what you said about a crude sentence that tells you something you didn't know is more powerful or more useful maybe than like a long poetic sentence that doesn't really say anything. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that is great. We, we, we just don't have time in this world. Yeah. <laughs> I love that sentence. That was great. Are there any sentences from writing? What do you call this? Like writing theory that stand out to you? Like I think of the one, you know, Hemingway's, was it for sale, baby shoes, never worn, you know, kind of thing. Yes. That's, oh my goodness. Now you put me on the spot because there are these beautiful sentences that I, that I love. And, you know, the opening lines of Lolita are just perfect. You know, she was low in the, you know, I, I couldn't quote them now. I'm not, I'm not that quote machine. So, but there are those like perfect, perfect things. Yeah. There's the one too. Is this the, the Lolita light of my life, fire of my loins, my sin, my soul? Yeah. I did. I don't know that. Is th- this is a, is this a musical? Lolita yeah. was a, a Vladimir Nabokov novel about a man who is as this compulsive love of a teenage girl. Oh, yes. Yes. So, okay. I am familiar with that as a concept, right? And now, that, yeah, this works. So, but that's there's this Russian writer. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And then the other one that comes to mind for me, and maybe there's, if it stimulates anything for you, and you'll probably remember like six more as soon as we disconnect, but <laughs> I think of that one, I forget who it's attributed to, but about 
Is it story and plot about the king died and then the queen died? Is a story, I think that's how it said, the king died and then the queen died is a story. No, the king died and the queen died is a plot. But the king died and the queen died of grief is a story. Story. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So I just, I love this. I was an English major. I understand you were an English major at Columbia. I was, yeah. sort of. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have enough credits to get a major, so I had what's called a concentration. Right on. Well, what haven't we covered that might be fun or useful for the listener or that you think is worth talking about? If anything, we've covered so much, and I'm, I'm really grateful for the 90 minutes we've had so far. Tell the truth. Hmm. What That's do you mean by that? It's scary. Always tell you know tell the truth. Give up your preconceived notions. Your story isn't what you you think it is going in. It's you you learn it. Go into the story. Go into whatever you do with your eyes open. Tell the truth about what you see. There's a there is a line I've always loved. I think it's a Conrad Aiken line, which is show us their faces. Tell us what they said. Wow, that's beautiful. And I, I think it's like yeah, it's it's it's. It's kind of like a little awkward and clumsy, and it's blunt and it's like a stone, but it's so true. Yeah, that's show cool. us their voices, show us their faces, tell us what they said. I like that. So you asked about a motto. If I if I if I had something that was closest thing to a motto, that might be it. Okay. Okay, that was fabulous. Well, that that was everything that I have to ask. And and I'll give you a motto from Jonas. Okay. Or the motto that I've taken from Jonas <clears throat> that I've lived by more than anything in these last couple of years, especially this this period of time. He says, I we were talking, I was worried about something, and I and he said, I never worry. I'll start to worry when something happens. Why worry when it's not happening? And then why worry when it happens? You deal with it. You waste time worrying and it may never happen what you think. Nothing is hopeless. I don't even know what it means, hopeless. Wow, that's great. And anytime we're letting our worries get to us, we know that they're just eating at us. I try to step back and and channel my inner Jonas. Awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for making the time for this interview, for writing this book. As I've said a few times, I really love it, and and I'm very grateful to you. I don't know when or where our paths will cross again, but I suspect they will, and I'll look forward to it. I hope so. And it's very, you know, there was, used to be a Brian Miller uh, uh, food critic at the Times named Brian Miller, spelled with a Y. Oh, I didn't know that. I know there are a few of us. There was another Brian J. Miller. I'm a J. In my high school. <laughs> so I know I know there's a few of us out there. With the Y. Yeah. Isn't that oh, amazing? Yeah. Yep. All right. So, okay. Uh, this has been a delight. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Take care. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep 
into every area of your life. Explore life's big questions. Create answers for yourself in community. Get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at brianmiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.